Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS. I'm Sarah Kachansky. Today, in celebration of International Women's Day, we're going to talk about women in financial services. I'm joined by some fantastic ladies who, like me, are all women in this industry and therefore acutely aware of what it's like to be a woman in financial services. So joining me today are Emma Lindley, VP at Visa and co-founder of Women on Identity. How are you today, Emma? I'm great, thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, Val Christensen, Director of Comms Oak North, who needs actually no introduction at this point. How are you today, Val? <laughs> Very well, thanks. Uh, Livia Benesty, Head of Financial Crime at Comply Advantage. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Uh, Shafali Gupta, who's making her debut today, uh, VP of Strategy and Operations at Fluidly. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, and last, by no means least, Diana Paredes, CEO of Suede. How are you today, Diana? Very well, thank you. Cool. Okay, let's get into it. So we're having this discussion today to coincide with International Women's Day on the 8th of March, which seems hugely poignant for this industry in particular, which often gets called out for its lack of equality, and many headlines are made of the gender pay gap and many other negative aspects. But it's not all doom and gloom, as these lovely ladies can attest to. So we will get into all this and more on today's show. So... I mean, let, let's let's sort of get straight into this. Like all of this week and all of next week and all of last week, we are seeing headlines about gender imbalances and gender pay gap and how nothing is being done and no progress is being made. Um, is that any of your actual experience or, or is this kind of, um, yeah? I mean, I think obviously there is a, a gender imbalance. I mean, I work for a fintech company. So, um, you know, I, I know that we have, you know, far more men in the company um, than women, especially in uh, technical roles. Um, however, I think unfortunately, all the headlines are quite misleading, and they they often blur the lines between equal pay and gender pay gap. So you end up having conversations, and I don't know how many women I've spoken to who say, you know, I can't believe I'm making 19% less than the guy who does the same same job as me. And it's like you're not, because that's been illegal for almost 50 years now. I mean, uh, it's just that there are more men in these senior positions where the pay tends to be higher. Um, so the real issue that we need to be tackling is getting more women to to go after those roles and creating more of a pipeline, encouraging companies to make it easier for women to go into those kinds of roles, whether it's through flexible working um, and other initiatives they might be doing, you know, blind CVs and so on. So I think that's that's where the issue needs to be focused and not on the incorrect fact, which is that women are being paid less to do the same job. I mean, I would say I agree with you to a certain extent, and I've had the same conversations with people that's different in the, the gender pay gap and equal pay. But there are still an awful lot of women who are being paid less for doing the same job. Um, I, I know this for a fact because my, my mother worked in um, HR for sort of 50 years and she was still telling people in the late 2000s that it was illegal to pay female mm. managers less than men. So um, I completely agree that that confusion is very unhelpful. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, I would say that um, not, I mean, it hasn't really been my experience, but I would say from speaking to a lot of friends and, and other uh, people in the industry, there is a reality where there is a, uh, an imbalance in the in the pay. It's not always uh, as clear cut as maybe the headlines try to make it, but I, I do see that there is quite a lot of, of inequality around that. Um, so as, as a founder of, of a tech company, one of the things that has really surfaced out for me was really the, the automatic bias that kind of comes in hiring women and thinking that at some point they're going to be going off for maternity and, and those kind of things. And uh, as a recent mom myself, I've actually become quite passionate about the realities that, you know, maternity ends up having in terms of inequality for not just, you know, the pay gap, but also career opportunities, because I think it's the elephant in the room in a lot of this conversation. So you'll hear me a lot of speaking about that in the, in the conversation of the podcast. 
So in my experience, I think there has been, um, the, I've seen a variety of, of different models. I was working at a consulting firm and uh, fortunately for me, there was a pretty standardized competency framework. And, uh, you know, if you got promoted and uh, that's a different issue, whether you get promoted or not, and what are the metrics that are used for promotion. But uh, if you got promoted, you would have this salary band and you would be pretty much compensated for how well you performed. Um on the other side of it, there's the fintech, at least fintech, I guess tech world, where the companies are smaller and they're still building out their competency frameworks. And so a lot of the times it's uh, how well you negotiate your starting pay and uh, at which level you come in. But uh, that standardization hasn't really happened yet until like several uh, months or even years down the line when um, that gap is sort of starts to get addressed. Um, so I think... The pay issue is, is obviously a key one, and that the point that you made about um, the the mean pay being skewed because of the the male dominance in senior roles and and the infrastructure around making sure women get to senior roles. When you're talking about do we see an imbalance? Definitely, as you get more senior, you become more and more the only woman in the room, and I do think that's very much in play. And I think if we're comparing kind of traditional finance to fintech i have heard it said that fintech is going to be worse because you've got the worst of finance and the worst of tech both traditionally male dominated i have to say in banking i never had a problem but that might also be the specifics of of the bank as we all know all the banks operate with very different personality types i was at city and i i've never had an issue i was also in compliance which was a more flexible career by its nature. I didn't have to be in when markets opened. I didn't have to be there until markets closed. So I saw a lot of female role models. And I think that makes a big difference. In tech, there is there are more men in the room. There are. Yeah, so I would agree with that. Um, so obviously, I, outside of my daytime job at Visa, I um, co-founded Women in Identity. And one of the things that we've been looking to do there is to understand in the area of digital identity, which is very firmly, well, it's adjacent to, to financial services, but it's very firmly in tech, there definitely is a gender imbalance. But what we've been looking to do is to try and get some stats out there about what that gender imbalance looks like. And I think for us, we're kind of grappling with, you know, how do you actually measure that? What does that look like? You know, how are we going to make it, you know, how are we going to give empirical evidence back to the, to the industry to say, this is actually the imbalance and this is what it looks like. And so I think, um, you know, that's one of the things I think that is really hard. It is hard thing to measure. I think uh, for me, you know, even when I just go to conferences, I don't need to be told that there is actually a gender imbalance. You know, I just go to a conference and I know there's a gender imbalance. And I think certainly for the digital identity industry, it's something that we have to address. Yeah, I mean, I think um, to talk about, you know, where, how, how do you solve this problem? So in the sense that I don't think anybody in this room disagrees that there is an imbalance, there are more men in the room. Um, what do we, what do we think about the ways that companies can, can go around solving it? So obviously you do have quotas, which I know, I know we'll have people on different sides of the table, but I do want to have a conversation about it. We do have conversations about hiring. You know, it's, it's one of those things that when you have a female manager, she either brings in an awful lot of female talent or, and I'm talking particularly about gender equality, or she does the absolute opposite and doesn't bring any any others, so that kind of women in senior power position. I mean, what what kind of mechanisms have you seen for trying to balance things out and which do you think are actually working? Val, do you want to jump um, in? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems is that even if you do enforce something like a quota or blind CVs or whatever it might be, you still might not necessarily hit the numbers that you want to because of the fact that there are so many fewer women who might be pursuing senior positions, in, in particularly in, in STEM. So I think you have to really go back to the the heart of it, which is 
beyond even before universities it's going into schools and talking to young girls at because that's the pivotal point right because once you have if you decide not to do your GCSEs or A levels in in particular subjects then you can't possibly go on to study those subjects in university and if you don't study the subjects in universities you're very unlikely to pursue a career in them you'd have to make a career change at at, at a different point in your life when perhaps it might be harder to do that so one of the things that we do at Oak North is go into schools and actually talk uh, to young girls about and young women about pursuing careers in, in STEM. We're actually doing one next week with um, a school in North London uh, called Challenger Limits Week. We've got Madvi um, from from Venextra, who also contributes to Forbes, who's moderating a panel with women from Spotify, Snapchat, and the head of STEM, STEM cell research at King's. And I think being able to bust some of the myths around um around a career in STEM and, and you know, if you work in, a, in science, for example, you won't necessarily be in a lab coat in a basement all day. Um, if you work in, uh, or if you want to pursue a career in coding, it doesn't mean that you, you know, have to be someone who sits in his basement or her basement with uh, earphones on and completely antisocial, you know, that kind of busting that myth. Just, uh, I'll go back to the quota point in a minute, but um, around this table, does anybody have a qualification in STEM? Because I have a history degree and that's the only one I have. So um, you'll put your hand up, Diana. What what do you have? A, I'm a civil and environmental engineer. Okay. Um, do you have, you know? I've got an MBA, but I don't have an MBA, yeah, yeah. Okay. Olivia? Politics and economics. I studied math and economics. Math and economics and Val. What Business degree. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's an, it's an interesting balance that yeah. I think um, I, I completely agree with your point. I think maybe there's also something to be said about for those people who do want to study history or politics or English, that doesn't exclude you. From and that a career in STEM doesn't mean you have to be an engineer, yeah. right? Because technically we're all women in, in, you know, STEM careers, but mine's in a communications role. So, you know, I think if you wanted to work for that kind of company, it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, you have to learn how to code, for example. I do think that there is something to really be said about putting this equality perception straight into like really young age mentality because when you know I, I've had a daughter like I was mentioning and when you look even at like the toys that are available for little girls I mean it's completely biased to dolls and being able to like play with little things that you're going to be changing and even the clothes are almost upsetting sometimes and I literally have so many clothes that are actually more for boys that people sometimes think that she's a little boy <laughs> because there is that that happens at a very early age right where you know you see clothes that are with little lambs and then little boats for the boys and it's kind of assuming that a girl can only pet an animal and the boys will have a boat so I think that that is something that we don't realize that ends up affecting people really really early on actually also just as a stat there i've read something earlier that um women's products women's toys and clothes and that goes down to children are 37 percent more expensive if they're aimed at girls than boys so actually you could save an awful lot of money by buying a boy's clothes i know know. (laughs) um sorry olivia you had a point and then i'll go back to um oh sure so um i was listening to a podcast last week by rashma sajani who started girls who code and um she's also written a book called perfect not brave or brave not perfect sorry brave not perfect and she was talking about how we educate girls to be perfect and not to be brave we educate boys to be brave and girls to be perfect and and I was thinking about this if that's more cultural if that's generally the case she's obviously done extensive studies on it and found that and I think that that's what plays in as you said I don't have a STEM degree so I can't speak to that but um I was definitely had a very privileged education I'm very lucky like that but um and I was told I could do anything but there was no point in doing anything in my mind if you weren't going to do it absolutely brilliantly and really really well so as soon as I found something a little bit difficult it was like oh no I can go over here and do this that I'm actually good at and get good results and everyone will be proud um and I do absolutely. think that that plays into it um and that plays into why we don't see women in senior roles I think some of the things that came out with the women in, in fintech power list um there was a group of, of wonderful women who were interviewed and I value you were interviewed as well and um 
Vika Manos said, um, it's not about skill, aptitude and ambition. It's lack of mentors, lower propensity to self-promote and take career risks and high likelihood of competing priorities. Take that combined with imposter syndrome, which Diana Big spoke about. That, I think, are the traits that we do tend to display more than others. No, no, Not all men are the same, not all women are the same. But if you're not prepared to put yourself out there, to self-promote, to say, I can do that promotion, to put yourself out for jobs that you're not 100% qualified for, um, and if you're constantly concerned that actually, I don't know what I'm doing and they're going to find me out... That you know in a senior many, role is a problem. Do you know how many times people have said to me, I just don't know what I'm doing? And I've just turned around to people and said, none of us do. Yeah. We're doing fine. <laughs> and actually, to that point, a lot of my friends who are new mums, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was like, I don't have children, but I'm 90% sure that, or 99% sure that most new mums have no idea what they're doing either. No, I mean, you make it up as you go, right? But I think that there, there is a reality around there because, you know, when, when I look at my career, I've never really felt you know, discrimination, even when I was in banking and, and as a founder, I've had so much support all the time, but I do think it has a lot to do with the way that I was brought up. And my father really groomed me to be, you know, to study STEM basically. And it was, that's the only thing that was an option for me to study even growing up. And he's from Peru, so it's a kind of a third world, third world country, you know, like mentality. But there is a reality where, you know, you do see that it affects a lot the the capacity of what you think you're capable of doing or, or not. So for me, there was never a doubt that I would basically study something that was, you know, technology driven. Um, but, you know, I p- took part in, in this program where we were trying to, it was actually sponsored by Number 10, and it was actually to help women in technology to progress their careers. And um, it was really focused on women in tech rather than founders, because we have a lot of supportive founders. And what we found as on the back of the of that work was really out, you know, insane. Basically, like 75% of the girls that took part in the program actually left their jobs. And that was really telling, because we thought they would actually ask for promotions or ask for pay rises and continue in their jobs. And then when we found ourselves with all these people leaving their jobs, we were like, oh, my God, like, what are we doing? We're going to have a whole generation of women in tech who are going to stop working in tech because of this program. But then what they came back to us with in terms of feedback is that the program, the mentoring program effectively had given them the courage to leave jobs that they were super unhappy with. And, or, you know, to even start doing their own businesses. And so that was really telling for me because I had never felt this kind of, you know, like inequality in some ways, but then to realize that there's so many women that just because of the way they're brought up or their education or how society is kind of putting pressure on them end up thinking that they should just take some job that they don't necessarily love. And I think that there's something to really be done around that. Let's go back to you, Emma. Sorry, I skipped over you there. Yeah, so I, was just, I think I was just going to um, talk a bit about quotas because um, I don't have direct experience of it, but my husband's company is a Swedish company and obviously in Sweden they have quotas. Um, and so... Their company, I can honestly say, when he talks to me about their company and how it is, it is one of the best companies that I've actually heard about that deals with, you know, inclusion and gender equality. Um, But I think it's not just about the diversity quotas, it's about inclusion. So an example of this, and I think, you know, it's about CEOs leading from the front. And uh, an example of this is he said, you know, I was walking past the CEO's office one day and uh, there he is holding a meeting writing on the whiteboard there's like five or six people in the meeting and he's got his little daughter on his hip because his daughter was sick and his wife needed to go to work and so he'd actually brought his daughter into work 
And I think that's what we need to see, you know, because diversity really is just window dressing if you don't have inclusion. And you have to have those policies for inclusion and ensuring that people can do those types of things and they feel that they can, you know, they can bring their kids into work if they're sick, yeah. for example. So there's kind of, there's a, there's a few things there. One is um, allowing children into the workplace, which some places I imagine would be like, that's not a thing that we can do because it's health and safety or whatever else it is. So firstly, changing those policies. And then two, having senior people do it. It's all very well telling everybody they can do it, but the people who might really need to do it are probably further down the company, people who can't afford the emergency childcare or who can't afford to take a day off work to look after their sick kid. So what you're suggesting is that we need to see it right at the top and then moving on exactly down. Exactly that, yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's a cultural and societal shift as well, right? Because, I mean, going back to Sweden and Scandinavia more broadly, um, obviously, you know, there's a lot about regarding their paternity policies as well and paternity leave and the fact that men are encouraged to take, you know, as much time as women off um, and it's it's paid. And I think, you know, that is, um, that's helping to shift people's mentality and not this idea that, well, once kids come into the picture, then it's obvious that the wife or the woman should, you know, stay at home and take care of the kids and she should forgo her career as a result. Um, you know, I think that's that's a perception issue and that's a, a cultural issue that needs to change as well. And the more companies that can do that, I mean, you know, the kind of the fame, the most famous example, I guess, is Mark Zuckerberg, right, taking two months off, which, um, you know, was a kind of uh, a thumbs up to the rest of the men in the company. Well, you can do this too if you want to, because I'm telling you that it's okay and I'm doing it from the top. There's two sides, right? You've got the infrastructure issue. So you've got making the workplace and work life flexible and open to that. And then you've also got the encouragement of women who may demonstrate certain traits like moving towards perfect, not brave, like imposter syndrome, like not self-promoting. And then in the workplace beyond flexible hours, I think there's coaching. I think there's, um, you know, leadership coaching makes a big difference. Mentoring, having female role models is really important. And having that mentor, being able to see that for me has been hugely helpful. When I, when I looked back to think about it in preparation for this, it made a massive difference at key points in my career. Um, but also that leadership coaching, like recognizing I might not put myself forward for something or I might not fight for something that I, I want, a role or promotion, a, a salary increase. Whereas I'm pretty sure a lot of the men I know working would walk in and go, yeah, I'll do that. I'll take that. Yeah, I, I think um, back to Shivali's point as well, those those entry salaries. So I've, I've done a lot of hiring in my time. And, you know, you always ask the question, you know, what are your salary expectations? And you can have, I've seen exactly that, you know, equally qualified men and women coming in to, to an interview and they give you completely different numbers. Um, obviously, there's always a kind of like, is that actually what you're paying? Is that what you want? You know, that kind of thing. But um, I think that even at a small company where people are observe that it is more flexible you do have more kind of it's not some i'm going to tell you these are the options this is what you will be paid you can tell me and we can have a conversation even then you still see equally qualified men and women come in and asking for different amounts and and something must be triggering that whether that's what their starting pay is whether that's their confidence um i wouldn't i haven't done any research but i can anecdotally say it's true i think as well this because well again it goes back to the sort of the societal and the cultural um, and and the and the fact that this is what we're teaching, you know, the difference between boys and girls and raising them. It's that girls are taught to wait for the boy to ask them to the dance, right? Mm -hmm. So we're wait. We always are taught to wait for things and not go for them. Whereas 
young boys are taught to go for it, even if you might be rejected. And the girl says no to the dance. And I think that's the point. So you are automatically from a very young age being taught to sit and wait and someone will ask you to the dance. <laughs> someone will give you that promotion. Someone will give you that pay rise rather than actually you going for it. And I remember so specifically when I was 23, my first job, I was, uh, I was at the pub after work with some colleagues and it was sort of review season. And I was speaking to a colleague and, and sort of saying on oh, my reviews tomorrow, you know, so I've just been working on my review note. And he was like, oh, yeah, you're going to ask for a pay rise. And I was like, well, no, I mean, I got like a promotion a few months ago. So, you know, I kind of feel like <laughs> I'm OK. And I was like, why are you going to ask for one? And he goes, I've never gone into review and not asked for one. And I was so annoyed. But I was so irritated because I thought then, right, so now I'm 23. So I've probably gone through, what, six or seven reviews now by this point where this guy has gone into every single one. He's like six ahead of me in terms of, you know, yeah. having had that conversation. It's like a secret so, code that you just didn't know about. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and I think totally that and go, uh, uh, this, this is why yeah. mentoring is so important, right? Because yeah. Yeah. I remember in banking when, when I started my career, I had, I mean, I've had wonderful mentors that were men and women, but so one of them told me, I was asking, so how do you negotiate like bonuses? <clears throat> like what happens? How do you guys decide? And he told me, always ask for a certain number. He was like, the bank will always pay you what they think you're worth and you're the one that decides what you're worth. And that was like one of the best tips I ever got to my career because I was always top of the class in terms of pay because I basically went into the room and asked for a number. And if you don't do that, right, yeah. it's game over already. I mean, I, the reason that I never had vast experience is because I very early on had, um, actually I had an economics teacher at school who taught me an awful lot about the world of work before I even realized that she'd taught it to me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Things were coming back to me in my first job. And I was like, oh my God, that's what she means. Yeah. And then she was always like, it's normal to get a pay rise every year. You should always have a pay rise every year, even if it's inflation, even if it's just... You you should get some kind Correct. of increase every year. And I, I, I didn't realize other people didn't know that, you know. When we, so we were talking about quotas and originally, I, I mean, I don't know exactly where I stand, or maybe I do. But when we're talking about having to, you know, these initiatives, you have to have 30% of your board be female, etc. Um, my gut instinct is always just go for the best candidate, go for the best candidate, obviously. Um, but that issue of mentoring, if there isn't that one woman there, do you see yourself that like, can you be what you cannot see? Do you put yourself forward? Do you have that mentorship? So actually, if it's just change one, and, and this was something that actually Jean Case was talking about, I think it's a Harvard Business Review or Recode Decode, one of those. And she said, just have one, and then you start to see the flywheel effect. And I do think that makes a difference in terms of, you know, more junior roles looking up. But also, is it fair to expect men that have reached senior positions to say, I recognize that a woman won't put herself forward. I recognize she won't ask for the pay rise. I recognize she won't put herself in that promotion point. So having that woman in senior management to express that view does perhaps hopefully change that perspective within senior leadership. And then you should see that flywheel effect. I completely agree on having uh, senior women in, in the company because I remember one time uh, I was speaking to this guy on my team and he was pretty senior as a partner. And he specifically said to me that I don't like female mentees because of this whole, um, you know, sexual harassment issue. <laughs> and I just actively stay away from them. And so that was such a shock to me because, you know, <laughs> if there are no women in top positions, who's going to bang the table for me? Right. And who am I going to um, seek mentorship from? Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university. It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. 
She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves? Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. That's a really interesting question on the mental point, actually. And I've watched these conversations happen on Twitter and haven't really participated. But why can't men be mentors to women? And there are two very different schools of thought. My personal belief is that if if it is the right man in the right position, they can be a mentor to a young woman. But there are also schemes. On the other hand of it, you have a lot of um, senior women who there are two things there. Again, one is the confidence. I don't know how I got here. I couldn't possibly impart that knowledge to somebody else. Or, and something I'd really like to pick up um, on at some point today, is this phenomenon we see of pulling the ladder up behind you. I'm here, but I now feel very threatened by any other woman who might come towards me. So I'm just going to sit at the top of my my pyramid. Um, Diana, you had a point. I'll, I'll let you make that and then we'll yeah, come no, back. I just wanted to add on quotas. So I'm, I'm a UN kid and so I've seen, I mean, in the UN, there are quotas for nationalities. <laughs> um, and there are the European Parliament, there are quotas in a lot of other institutions that maybe you wouldn't expect that, that they exist. But there is a lot of really good studies done by the Poverty Lab where they've actually gone into, you know, even poor countries and imposed certain quotas to try to change the way that, you know, people were voted into politics. And, um, and there is a reality that if you have quotas and then you remove them, there's something really healthy about that. Uh, and you see a lot of change that happens from having this quotas almost, you know, forcing this kind of change, then people get used to seeing women at the top, and it becomes just business as usual. And so I think that, you know, really looking at something that can be imposed at the beginning, and then eventually removed is probably the right approach to, to do it. So a bit of the best of both worlds. But, it, you know, there is too much inequality to assume that, you know, even one woman at the top is enough. Yeah. I mean, um, and and to sort of, you know, you're suggesting quotas a way to get something kick-started, but to sort of tie it into that point of having one woman at the top not being enough, do you think it's a myth, this, like, one woman at the top pulling the ladder up behind me? Because I wonder sometimes if it's one of those, like, scaremongering headlines that puts people off or or turns people against senior What, like Queen Bee Syndrome kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, you do see it. it. Uh, But I do actually think it's... Well, I don't know if it's changing or if I've just got luckier, or maybe I've made wiser decisions in the last few years of my career. I don't know. I think earlier on, I definitely did see women who like to keep a certain gap around them of, of any other women. And, and there were a lot of maybe men in their team and, and women were kept relatively junior. I have seen that. I saw that more in banking. Um, Again, it could just be personal experience and not the fault of banking. I don't know. It's just what I've what I've seen. But more recently... I think we do see women celebrating women. I think we see women reaching out saying, can I help or asking for help a lot more. Um, you, We've built communities. You've got a women in fintech powerless. You know, Sarah, you and I bumped into each other at RegTech Women last week. 
and the aura is very much one of of reaching out of helping and i do i do think i've seen that energy shift in the industry a lot more we're much more aware that we are not, it's not a zero sum game um and we all benefit when we help each other and promote each other we all benefit from that i, th- I think also the the hiring point as well um it, whenever i've hired i've i have generally speaking hired women and that hasn't been a deliberate decision to to hire women it just seems they are always the right can the right candidate for the job in my opinion and in both the the managerial roles i've had i've sort of doubled tripled the number of, of women in the team and again it's not deliberate but it's because i'm looking for different sets of skills to my male counterparts so they're looking for a certain set of skills i'm looking for a different set of skills and actually it comes together really beautifully but again you don't always get uh, male hiring managers who are aware that they maybe have you know what's it called unconscious bias when they're they're speaking to young candidates um but i think as well you know i think it's it goes back to the point about you know women actually applying for that job as well i mean it's that stat which i think was from um i first read it in cheryl sandberg's lean in but the the fact that intel study okay fine the fact that men will apply for a job if they meet 60 percent of the criteria women will apply if they meet 100 percent of the criteria so now when i talk to my friends and they they're sort of and 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 i'll be looking at job specs and it's like if you have 100 percent of the criteria assume you're Mm overqualified go for the ones (laughs) where you only meet 60 percent of the criteria because you never know and you know you probably you're probably underestimating yourself um, and being far too modest especially if, if you're talking to someone who's British. Um, so I think, you know, that's the, the sort of thing you, you, those are the kinds of conversations and whether that's with mentors or just with friends. I mean, m- me having this job at Oak North, you know, I was 25 at the time and I had an epiphany on the tube on the way back after a secondment with Oak North. And then I was about to meet some girlfriends for dinner and said, I'm going to ask Rishi and Joel, I sh- I'm going to have a conversation with them and, and tell them that they should hire me full time. And they were all like, yeah, that's a great idea. Go for it. And if they'd all been like, oh, I'm not sure. Are you ready? I mean, you know, they could probably find someone more qualified, which of course they could have done. Um, then I might have been a bit discouraged and deterred from doing it and then missed an amazing opportunity. And, you know, three and a half years later, I can safely say it was absolutely the right decision. But I think sometimes just even having those open conversations with friends, especially if they work in similar careers to you and you can say, well, what are you on? I know it's a bit of an awkward conversation, but if you do that and you have that conversation, it might hopefully help you to kind of get a reality check and see what you're really worth. Being more honest about money is something we all need to do. We want to be more honest about what we're being paid and and how we got to that situation. Um, Diana, you want the, yeah, you, I mean, one of the things that uh, I was discussing this actually with a client, so she's a senior executive bank, I can't tell you which one, but she was telling me that she's actually making a point and she's told senior management that she's going to hire a woman for one of the exact positions that she's trying to fill in. And she wants it to be a woman. So she's literally, you know, done a whole biased interview to try to get a, a woman in. And, and it's really interesting because I think that if you... If you really try to to add up all the different variables, right? So first, the woman has to have enough confidence to apply for the job. So she was telling me she was having a lot of trouble even getting applicants in for a super top job that would be just women. Um, And then you add the unconscious bias, which is a reality. And then you add the reality as well of, you know, the maternity and the gender pay gap and all of these kind of things. You really start seeing very quickly all these odds that start stacking up against women actually having a successful career. And so I think that you really need to keep in mind all the different variables that actually take someone to really have a successful career and to be, you know, like fruitful and to bloom effectively. So that's why imposing certain things and, you know, trying to force the, the you know, the flow effectively is not something that I think would be too, 
too bad. So I think unconscious bias is, is a real thing uh, because I've experienced it myself, right? So I think that the when I started my own company and I started interviewing people for jobs, very quickly I realized that whether I liked it or not, when I would interview a woman, I would basically start questioning myself whether she would go on maternity or she was going to, you know, she was about to have a kid or, or you know, be off for six months or a year and I would have to keep their jobs. And I think that when I realized that that was happening to me, uh, given that I'm a feminist and I support women, you know, all the way, it really hit me that a lot of the the problematics around this whole gender inequality does come definitely from the whole reality around maternity. So in our company, we started doing something where when men actually go on paternity leave, uh, we decided to actually give them, you know, full pay for a month. And then we basically accommodate for another five months where they can do some part time, uh, where they can actually, you know, use all their holidays in one go um, and, you know, take advantage of the work from home and from the, the extra holidays that they can be adding in terms to, to really give them about six months because then you're really trying to achieve this kind of equality around the maternity and paternity leave situation. Uh, but, you know, this, you know, we're doing this as an SME and that's a very uh, difficult thing to achieve and we really do need a lot more support and, I guess, enforcement even at policy level to make that a reality. Um, one of the other things that I think is quite important to mention around maternity is that it's very difficult uh, for people that cannot afford the help to actually really go uh, on with their careers. And that's something that, you know, we've been uh, discussing at number 10 at the Treasury several times. But there is a reality where at policy level, there needs to be a lot more support in terms of subsidized care, uh, places where you can actually leave your kids and being able to bring your kids to work is actually a, a must from my perspective. Um, as the CEO of my company, I've been able to bring my daughter to work pretty much from day one. Um, I came back after three weeks because I had to go and speak at an event and it's been a real privilege to be able to have her around me from the moment that I, I, I wanted to come back to work. I can do that because I can afford having a nanny that comes to work and I can afford uh, being able to to pay for that that kind of support in the office and because I'm the boss and I can and I can make it happen. But I really, really feel for all the women that are trying to, you know, continue their careers after having a child and cannot afford the realities of a nanny or childcare or can simply not bring their kids with them with them to work, which I think is really something we need to we need to change. Um, you can bring dogs to work, so why couldn't you actually bring children with you? So um, Emma, I'll let you make your point, and then I want you to all start thinking about what advice you might give you, you might give your younger selves if you could speak to them. So Emma, do you want to finish what you're going to say on it, that? Yeah. And then... So I think um, I was just going to say, um, in terms of your point earlier about you know, do we think that women have pulled the ladder up behind them? I think. If you probably roll back, you know, 30, 40 years for a woman to get to a very senior position, she probably had to be really pretty ruthless. And I think, you know, she probably had to behave like a man. And I think what's changed now is that you don't have to behave like a man to get somewhere. And I think the other thing is, you know, that to your point about the communities, there are so many more communities now. You can network with people, you can get mentors, you know, all of that type of thing. And I think there's a lot more people, women now who almost feel like it's their duty to debunk the myths of how they've got to where they've got to and go, actually, you know, this is these are the things, these are the practical things that you need to do to, to get to a more senior position. You know, you need to be asking for, you know, pay rises and all of those types of things. And that's a normal thing to do. Um, and so I think that's just... I think things have changed, and I think for the better. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Um, talking about advice then, is that, you know, if you could go back and speak to your, like, 18-year-old, 16-year-old, 25-year-old self, what would you say about, like, a Ask career for pay in this rise industry? in every review. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> that would be one. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think... Uh, 
I mean, my advice isn't really just for for women kind of coming into the fintech industry. It's it's always the same advice I give to any young person coming into the industry. It's that take advantage of every opportunity and take advantage of the amazing ecosystem that that there is. I mean, there are so many. Well, the fintech insider podcast, for example, is a is a great place for even me. You know, I continue to learn um, from listening to the podcast, but also the events that you guys do. Right, I've met some of the most amazing women and amazing people at the events that you guys host, which are free. You know, anyone can go to them. So whether you're a student or if you're starting out in your career, you just want to meet a few more people, I'd say, you know, take advantage of, of that. And you can find these events so easily. You go on Eventbrite, you follow the right people on Twitter, you'll be able to find find those events. So network like crazy and yeah, take advantage of every opportunity. Is that something you knew when you were 18 or is that something you have learned? So I think networking is something that I've just, I've always liked to do it. So I mean, that's something that I, I did from the moment I started my career, um, more so on the comm side than than fintech. But fintech came came later. Um, I mean, I think you know it's is obviously a bit intimidating as a as a young person when you're 21 and you've just graduated, going to a, an event and not knowing anyone. Um, so take someone with you. You know, you'll probably find a friend who initially can be there to help break the ice, but make sure you don't spend the whole night then talking to that person. Actually, go and try and, and make the effort <laughs> to speak to other people. That's a bit of a waste of time. Um, but then. I think as well, it's about having those open conversations, you know, before you might get to the point where you have mentors, um, speak to your friends, you know, have open conversations about asking for pay rises, um, you know, swap CVs, see if you might be being a bit too modest, do the modesty check, um, you know, shop, swap job specs and say, you know, do you think I could, I could do this? Am I, am I too overqualified? I think those kinds of conversations are really, really helpful um, when you're starting out because you might not know necessarily who to go to for mentorship, but you certainly have friends who you can talk to. Okay, Shafali, how about what would you what would you tell, you know, yourself 10, 15 years ago? Like what have you personally learned? And then, you know, to Val's point, what would you tell other people now? Like what what would you tell young people like, if you were at an event and somebody came up to you? So um I I guess what the way I have uh, progressed in my career, I think it's a lot about actually working hard and and getting people in the company to believe in you. Um, and I think that's a natural progression for finding the right mentors. Uh, and actually, I've had some amazing mentors throughout my career, and they have really helped me um, get gain that confidence and get to that next level in like asking for things that I want. And, you know, them also, of course, pushing me along the way. But that was so important for me um, in the early stages. So definitely, you know, try and build those relationships. I think the other thing is find your role model, uh, find a couple of people that you want to be like and their their lives that you ha- you're inspired by. And so uh, I, my current CEO, Caroline Plum, she's, uh, she has done an amazing job building a company and also having uh, a very good life balance. And so, you know, have, working directly for her, I'm quite lucky, but I un- understand not all companies have that. But, you know, trying to find even those role models and trying following what they have done to get to where they are. Brilliant. Diana? To my younger self, what would mm. I tell her? I would tell her not to worry about absolutely anything because it's a <laughs> it's a waste of time, basically. Um, and and I think sometimes you know maybe women more than men tend to overthink it. And and I think that the you know there's so many things that can happen in life that if you try to overthink about every single scenario, then you end up paralyzed and you don't do anything. So I think that you know this approach of just doing it and going for it is something that I think is is quite important. And and to do that with like you know, a free spirit, effectively not, not to worry about, you know, what could happen or not. You're, you're, you'll not regret trying, right? You never regret trying. You regret only the things that you don't try. 
Um, and I think you were talking a bit about like, you know, the, the realities of like going after opportunities. So people say there's an expression that I read recently, which I can't remember where it comes from, but it says that luck is opportunity that meets preparation. And, and I really believe that, right? I, I don't think that luck is, is even something without this preparation and actually going after these opportunities. So you have to create your own luck. Uh, so knock as many doors as possible. Don't care about rejection and just go for it. Yeah, I mean, to, to what you just said and also to what Livia said earlier, my advice to my younger self is it's okay to fail. Yeah. I, I took me so long. To, I was made redundant twice before I was 30. And um, by the time the second one, by the time I was through the redundancy of the second place, I was like, I'm over this. But like the first time that happened to me, I was paralyzed. Yeah. I cried for weeks. It wasn't anything I'd actually done wrong because the industry I was in was collapsing. But knowing that it's okay to fail... And actually, I quite like the idea of giving practical advice to other women. So the best piece of advice I was ever given, it was actually by a man, was when you write an email, never say just. I just wanted, I just wondered, I just never, just don't use the word just There's in an email. There's a Google add-on that will underline it in yellow for you. It's uh, sorry, not sorry, or something yeah. along those lines. That's and it will <laughs> highlight, it will highlight apologize, sorry, just yeah. all of those phrases and it highlights them in my emails and I remove them exactly and it's those little practical things as well which I think are quite helpful like yeah. finding great mentors is brilliant but also like just one change in your day-to-day -day life Emma how about you um yeah I mean just I guess it's kind of follow on from that really I think it's just trust you trust yourself because I think it will be okay you know there's going to be ups and downs in in your career um and you just have to trust that you've got the skills to get through it and everything will be all right um I think the other thing is you know don't think about jobs as a ladder and careers about a ladder sometimes a sideways move um is fine as well you know don't beat a bad job to death sometimes it's all right just to leave um obstacles you don't have to go through them uh, you can sometimes just go around them so yeah brilliant and Livia um, I'll keep going with the finding female mentors and role models, um, but generally just finding, find allies. If you're in a difficult position, find your ally. Uh, and that will be men and women. Um, and definitely talk to the men about what they're doing. They, there are things that they are much better at this than. And we need to understand how this works and how this operates. One of my closest friends is also my mentor career wise. And he regularly looks at me and says, stop playing yourself down. You should be ashamed of yourself. And it's absolutely true. And he also gave me the most practical piece of, information or, or advice for my career which was make yourself indispensable make yourself indispensable wherever you are and you'll be just fine brilliant okay well that wraps up today's discussion thank you all so much for joining me it's been such a lovely hour or so um, where can people find out more about you your companies any of those initiatives you might have mentioned earlier you want to promote so emma let's start with you uh, yeah, well, hopefully everybody knows where Visa is, but um, <laughs> the other place uh, you can find me at is at Women in Identity, and that's www.womeninidentity.org. Perfect. Val? Uh, yes, I'm on uh, Twitter at Val Christensen and LinkedIn, Valentina Christensen. Um, if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's www.oaknorth.com, and our fintech platform is oaknorth.ai. Brilliant. Livia? Livia Benesty, at Livia Benesty, LinkedIn and Twitter, um, compliadvantage.com. Shivali? So same Shafali Gupta, LinkedIn. Um, and if you want to find out more about Fluidly, it's www.fluidly.com. Perfect. And Diana? Sweet.org. And I'm on at Diana Artemis 3 or at Sweet Labs. Perfect. And I'm on at Sarah Kashansky on Twitter. Producer Laura caught up with Megan Kaywood, now head of digital strategy at Barclays and formerly chief platform officer at Starlink to get her unique perspective on the same issues we've just been discussing. Let's hear from her now. 
So welcome to Fintech Insider. Thank you for joining us on this very special Women in Financial Services show. First of all, what we kind of wanted to know is, what is it really like to be a, a woman in kind of financial services, fintech and tech? What are your personal experiences? Mm-hmm. Is it as gender imbalanced as the headlines imply or is it not quite as bad? Yeah, I will say that my experiences differed from each company I've worked in. I think it differs between San Francisco and London and also from tech into banking and then also from banking into, you know, Challenger Bank into a traditional large financial institution. Um, Early in my career, what I found is that um, women were very much um, had it felt like we had an equal seat at the table. I didn't personally feel any gender diversity issues so much so I think that I perhaps naively thought that um, maybe sometimes there were self-fulfilling prophecies more than um, things that were actually happening in real life, only because I didn't know if I was an outlier or just an odd data point who'd never experienced gender diversity issues um, or if they actually existed. I will say as I moved increasingly from tech into banking, I realized that I was wrong um, and that there are still definitely, particularly in large institutions, just, you know, either kind of subtypes or things that can manifest, which definitely lead to an outcome where you still have largely males in leadership positions um, and a gender pay gap that is very real and exists. Um, And so it is still a challenge that we're working through. I think that it's two-sided though. There's one, you know, the kind of environment and culture of organizations that we're all continually working to try to evolve to be much more inclusive of women, enable them to rise to leadership. And I think there's also a growing awareness of the fact that for many women, um, we can, you know, read the books like Lean In and say, keep your foot on the gas. But then there's the real element of family and how that affects um, career growth in a way that maybe doesn't or hasn't typically affected men and what that means. And being conscious of that and enabling and supporting women to still keep moving at pace in their career as they desire to do so. So I think that you know, there are very real issues in gender diversity, but they're quite complex and they're different from institution and industry and company. Absolutely. Thanks very much. That was a really interesting response from lots of different uh, perspectives. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which, um, you've kind of just joined Barclays, uh, a kind of more traditional incumbent from Starling, a challenger. Mm-hmm. Um, in mm-hmm. your experience, is there a difference um, between incumbents, fintech, and tech firms in their approach to gender equality? Do you think they, mm-hmm. they see it differently or they address it differently? So the reasons for gender diversity issues, in my experience, are different from tech companies to larger traditional financial institutions. The cause for diversity issues in tech companies, in my experience, is a lack of female applicants for the roles. And that could be because of the cause that For many, they think that they need a computer science degree to even apply for the roles when that isn't necessarily the case. So, for example, when I was first at Starling, I remember we had a meeting where we'd written the name of all of our new engineers on the board and we were looking at how to structure them into teams. And at one point, Ambo and the CEO stops the meeting and she asks, you know, where are all the females? Like, where are the women? Um, And our CTO had replied that, you know, we didn't have any female applicants. And she pointed out that that wasn't a good enough excuse, that we needed to be intentional about diversity and about hiring women. And if they weren't coming to us, we needed to go um, out there and find them and find talented women from organizations like Girls Who Code. But there were plenty of engineers just because we weren't having the applicants wouldn't a reason to not hit, you know, our own goals for diversity. And so I think in tech, that's been a very real challenge is 
um, trying to find more female applicants. Not that they don't exist. It's just uh, more difficult to hit those quotas, even when you really want it. In my experience, though, at Starling, Anne was such a strong um, leader in terms of um, enabling that type of diversity across the company that I didn't see those issues manifest at Starling. I think that's quite a unique situation, though. From traditional financial institutions, I think what we see is that they're just much larger. There's lots more levels of leadership. And as a result, what we can see, I think, are still some of the more traditional issues where the higher you go in the organization, the fewer females are there. There have been a number of you know, studies and you know, so many different conversations about why that is and how we can remove barriers. Um, I think sometimes there's subconscious bias still. I think sometimes there's um, you know, just kind of bureaucracy or process-related items that can lead to that. I'm not entirely sure, but it is definitely my experience because that in larger institutions, particularly in banking and finance, you just see fewer females at the top. But beyond that, I would say that there's just diversity issues as a whole in terms of really trying to aim to have not just gender diversity, but now looking to also have diversity of background. So like at Barclays, we've um, been really intentional about hiring on our new board, um, people who come from different sectors who can bring different thoughts to the table as well. So I think when we look at diversity issues, we're starting to look at them more holistically, saying it's about background, it's about gender, it's about a number of different um variables. And we really want to be conscious about that and start um, bringing in that kind of diversity into the company. Absolutely. I think that holistic point is really important. Like obviously this show is, is particularly for International Women's Day focusing on women in financial services, but the wider di diversity issue is also really, really important, particularly um, at this point in time. Um, so yeah. What do you think are the possible solutions and where is it that you start? Is it um, that's STEM subjects are just not attracting enough women at the beginning mm -hmm. of their career, at the beginning of their education? Or is it that women are put off by jobs that they think need STEM that they don't have a qualification for? But actually, like you were saying, with diversifying of backgrounds, STEM isn't mm -hmm. the only yeah. factor. Yeah, I think we've seen a number of companies um, that help women to navigate the career path and start to, to hit at some of these diversity issues. One blocker is this idea that STEM is a prerequisite to working in, in tech. And for that, what we've seen is that companies who come out with a career navigation program, like at Starling, they call it Passport to Starling, where you can start in an early career role, but then as you identify another role that you want to move into, whether that's engineering or fraud or operations, they can then help you to move into that position. I think those types of um, programs for early career individuals can be really helpful for particularly for those who are wanting to move into a role that they're really excited about but don't particularly have experience in. I think the most interesting thing in that for me has seen people who are non-technical without a degree in computer science who move into an engineering role. Um, normally in my experience I've seen people move from design into those roles for whatever reason but it's very much something that people can be self-taught that they can learn and that if they have an organization that supports them they can then move into it. I think later through the kind of, you know, career progression, seeing more women at the top as well um, is going to take, a, you know, a whole you know, set of people working on this together. It's not just something that women can do alone to empower themselves. It's not just any one company. It's really more of a collaborative effort that I think will continually need to be made to recognize, you know, what is causing the issues that's 
keeping women from rising to those top leadership positions? Um, and how do we start to overcome those? I think there's a good conversation happening around how just family and family planning affects that as well. And saying for mothers returning to work, how do we better support them? How is it that we enable that career life balance such that women can still rise to the top and not be put off from doing that and, and continuing in their careers, which is kind of a, a time period when we often see women kind of reach a plateau. Um, but how can we better support them through that such that we don't see more women entering into tech fields and doing the kind of early career moves, but also continue up into the most senior level positions in the company throughout their career? Absolutely. Um I think that's that's really important. Um, and also then in terms of you touched on kind of female empowerment at the start of their careers, um, if you were looking back or what advice would you give uh, young women who are just starting out in this industry um, like what, or any advice that you've received over the years that you would want to pass on? Yeah, definitely. So when I was starting out, I actually had a background in cognitive science at university, which Cognitive science research and neuroscience research is very fascinating, but it's a solo endeavor. What appealed to me was I had co-founded a company with a friend, and I love the collaborative and cross-functional effort of that. So I really wanted to go into tech in San Francisco, but I had no experience in it. So for me, there was a question of, you know, where do my skills and interests best align, um, and how do I even land a role in a tech company? Um, and I read a really good book by Tina Seelig called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, and in that, she actually happened to have had her PhD in neuroscience and then talks about how she navigated from that into management consulting first. Really talking about how no matter what your skills are that you've developed or whatever your uh, experiences are that you particularly have, looking at the role that you want next, even if it's entirely different, there's probably something that you've built up which you can take across. So it's all about framing the skills that you have to match the role that you want and just communicating that effectively. So for her skills in um, neuroscience, she was looking at the analytical skills and how research would prepare her to have that kind of mindset that would enable her to succeed in a management consulting role. And so she does a lot of really good um, work in explaining how it is that you can leverage whatever experiences you have to go into the role that you want next. So that's advice I would definitely give. Saying if you want to go into tech or whatever area, even if you don't have any experience in it, particularly, you can use the experiences that you've had to help move into that different sector that you want to go. So I very much say whatever it is that you're excited about to just pursue it um, and to kind of use that mindset of being able to be adaptable to move into that area. I think the second thing that I would say is just to be ambitious around it as well, to be not afraid of, you know, pursuing whatever area it is that excites you the most and just kind of go for it as much as you can. Fantastic. I think that's an awesome point to finish on. So thank you so much for joining us on Fintech Insider. Thanks for listening. If you want to join the discussion, find us on social media at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or find us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. We'd love to hear your thoughts on everything we just discussed. As usual, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you really love us, please leave us a review. That's all for this week. Goodbye.